The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Neuromatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to our program on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. You know, America's love affair with the automobile dates back 60 years now, and the love has grown greater and greater with each passing year, I do believe. Owning and driving a car has meant so much more than just having some type of personal transportation. It's a symbol of freedom, a symbol of status, a a, a symbol of independence, and it's entertainment. You know, those of you that are nearer to my age will uh, reminisce about the leisurely Sunday afternoon drive. So having a car means a lot of different things. It means different things in different parts of the country as well. In highly urban areas where more public transportation is available, the dependency is not as great, but the love affair is still there. We have a wonderful guest that we will be talking with today about the topic of driving, and her name is Meredith Lyons. Uh, Meredith is the owner and chief operating officer of Baker Driving Rehabilitation, And she has served on two older driver safety task forces in Maryland. She's spoken to multiple groups about driving safety and driving rehabilitation. She's presented to a wide variety of groups, including the Alzheimer's Association, high school groups, a stroke symposium, a driver safety symposium, a radio program, Dave Sirio's You Auto Know. Uh, She's been a featured writer in the Dementia Queen and iSenior Solutions. She has had a wide range of occupational therapy experiences with focus primarily on treating patients with neurological disorders and visual impairments. She is also an author and creator of the multifaceted instrumental activity of daily living performance assessment, which she presented to the American Occupational Therapy Association. Meredith is an occupational therapist and is a driving rehabilitation specialist. Meredith, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Well, it is um, certainly our honor to have you here. And uh, I would like to go into your background a little bit for our listening audience. First of all, what is occupational therapy? Could you define that for our listeners? I knew that was coming. Either that or what's a driving rehab specialist, because I get that all No, that the one's time. coming. <laughs> that, oh, that one's coming. One. Okay, sorry, I jumped ahead. Uh, an occupational therapist is um, similar to other therapists, like a speech therapist or physical therapist, in that we help to, um, to, to help our patients to become more independent. The, um, the primary focus of the occupational therapist is to gain independence in their daily living skills. 
So dressing, grooming, bathing, you know, um, going from the toilet, going into the tub, um, and then that's in the home. I mean, gosh, it ranges all the way to driving, actually, um, because anything that occupies your daily life can fit into the realm of occupational therapy. It just depends on what setting that therapist works in. So there are many, many avenues um, that occupational therapists take, and um, many types of therapies can be provided. So I've primarily been an occupational therapist in, um, in a skilled nursing setting, in acute rehab setting, outpatient therapy, and now I am doing um, home health. So I've pretty much done everything. Um, other than pediatrics, <laughs> but it's, it's been fun. And I love, I love helping people gain independence, which kind and of led I, me into the driving. And I can see how much you love it. And all of these areas that you mentioned have to do with independence, but driving has its own unique challenges and uh, unique uh, skill set requirements. So you knew I was going to ask, what is yeah. a driving specialist? Uh, a driving rehab specialist can encompass a couple or a few different things. Um, primarily, what I do as a driving rehab specialist is I um, assess and evaluate older drivers. Uh, these older drivers typically come to me um, from a referral from a neuropsychologist or a primary, um, your primary physician. Sometimes we get them from our um, Department of Motor Vehicles. And we also will get referrals from family members that are concerned about their loved ones driving. Driving rehab specialists can also um, do training in adaptive equipment. So that is probably a love of mine as well, uh, because that's the independent part where you get to help somebody get back uh, to driving. So someone having a stroke, brain injury, uh, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's. I mean, there's many different avenues of somebody might needing uh, adaptive equipment, like a hand controls or a left foot accelerator for someone who's had an amputation or um, even had a stroke, uh, enlarged mirrors. And there's so many types of equipment. It's mind-boggling, really, um, the technology that's out there uh, to get people driving that couldn't even think about it before. It is really impressive. How does one become a driving specialist? What type of education requirements are there, and is there a certification process? There, uh, there is a certification process. Uh, not everybody that's a driving rehab specialist has it. Um, typically, most of the driving rehab specialists are occupational therapists who have ventured into this you know, world of driving as as they've, you know, uh, encountered their patients uh, and questioned who's to figure out whether they're safe to drive after having this stroke or, you know, um, or someone who comes in with Alzheimer's and they're still driving and who's, you know, going to decide whether they're safe or not. So um, most therapists will then go to a course. Um, there isn't a lot of um, regulation regarding what your actual education needs to be. There is some, depending on each state, what your qualifications should be. So in Maryland, we have a medical advisory board for um, the drivers in our state. And um, if you want to become a driving 
school, so you want to train people with adaptive equipment or new drivers that may have a developmental disability that can't go through the traditional driving schools, um, you know, like a typically aging 16, 17-year-old that may require some adaptations either to their learning style or also to the vehicle. Those uh, therapists and schools uh, have to be certified and licensed. So you have to submit paperwork and applications and so forth. For now, um, go Yes. Now, the, the ability to drive, you know, I think the public generally thinks of it as something that you either have or don't have and doesn't really think of it as a rehabable ability. But you have Baker Driving Rehabilitation. Explain to our listeners what that is and what you do there. Yeah, so Baker uh, Driving Rehab um, was started between myself and um, Baker Rehab Group. Baker Rehab Group is a, um, they offer um, home health services and outpatient therapy services. So it was a great mix because um, I was looking for another opportunity and I really wanted to run my own school. So driving rehab in the sense of older driver evaluation um, is a little limited on the rehab um, where you would typically think of, you know, maybe somebody with a stroke, we would rehab them with adaptive equipment or with mirrors or so forth. But what I find um, sometimes is that we will get an older driver and who wants a driving evaluation because their family member is very concerned um, just because they've gotten older. And so typically the rehab isn't your typical rehab. It's, you know, doing the actual evaluation, which is occupational therapy. We do those evaluations. But there isn't necessarily any training, um, although I often find that I give tips in my, um, after my behind the wheels and, um, and the comprehensive evaluation because we all develop habits as we drive and some of them are good and some of them are not good. And, um, we all have them. There isn't a perfect driver. Um, so oftentimes I will, uh, find that people have habits like that so-called California stop where you kind of do the rolling (laughs) stop. Um, and so after the evaluations, even if, you know, the, the client drives phenomenally and drives well and, and is safe, there will be these little tips that I give um, just because I want people to stay safe. This is a community effort to keep everyone driving safely for as long as possible, as long as they can, because it isn't. It is all those things that you said when you started. People love to drive for their leisure. They love to drive because they want to get around. They want to be independent. They don't want to rely on anybody. So the rehab is... is um, not so much rehab as in what you would typically think of getting better, but really staying safe. Uh, Well, Meredith, you know, it uh, happens often in my office that different members of a family have different opinions on whether someone should continue to drive. The patient may be saying, I am safe to drive. Some of the children may be saying, let him or her continue to drive. Others may be saying he needs to have his driver's license taken away. And what I have often said in that situation is the only thing missing is objective data. So. 
we would refer to someone like you. How do you then assess whether somebody, and let's put it in the context of some type of a cognitive disorder, some type of dementia, how would you assess whether somebody should drive or not? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I get that uh, frequently because typically uh, when somebody comes in my office, I am younger than them. And so they're looking at me going, you know, I've driven and you fill in the blank number of years and I've never had an accident and there's no reason why I can't continue driving. And, mm-hmm. um, and even those that have, you know, been diagnosed with, for instance, mild cognitive impairment, which is kind of that, you know, beginning collection of um, sort of symptoms that, you know, can then lead to Alzheimer's or other dementia uh-huh. disorders. Uh, and that's when I typically see people in my office. And, you know, how am I going to decide that? Uh, there are, as you may know as well, there are lots of objective assessments that are um that can identify very specific components that you need to drive. Uh, so we will look at vision, you know, and that's typically the one that people go, yeah, we need vision to drive. Um, mm-hmm. I listen, you know, I, I, I pay attention to the hearing. It's not necessarily as important um, for driving as, as you age, you, you start to lose your hearing and it is important, but most people have learned how to compensate or have a hearing aid and, and that goes in the back of my mind as far as if, if I have to shout during the entire assessment, how are they going to, you know, focus without that hearing in the car? Um, we will also look at all the other components like attention, um, divided, alternating, selective attention, um, being able to, you know, shift attention back and forth, for instance, from a traffic light to um how fast they're going or their lane, um, whether they're still in their lane. And we do that through, um, we use a trail making A and B, more specifically B. Uh, We used to use a program called the Useful Field of View, which was a computer program, which I absolutely love and I'm trying to get it back. It's on an older older, uh, operating system, unfortunately. And, um, And then we also look at reaction time. Uh, with the foot, using a reaction time monitor to see how quickly someone could stop in a panic-type situation. Um, and, and, you know, memory and reasoning. And, and quite honestly, I gather a lot of information uh, from the interview. It's probably one of the best skills to learn as a driving rehab therapist is how to interview somebody. Just as you might interview someone for a job, the conversation you have with somebody will reveal a lot of information. And the, um, those clients that have that uh, mild cognitive impairment are great at, um, at working around their deficits because they're dealing with them on an everyday basis. So forgetting things and not being able to pull the words out that they want to use. So they're great at not giving details and sort of masking those symptoms so that the appearance stays the same so that they can carry on the conversation. So the interview goes um, very much into not just that objective data, but I can pick up on some things and then pull from that. And that's in the well, office. 
Meredith, forgive me for interrupting here, but yeah. we're going to go to a break, and I would like to hear more about the approach that you used to breaking the tie, you know, making the final judgment in just a couple of minutes. So we are going to go to a break, and we will return with Meredith Lyons. Stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us. We are back. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and we are talking with Meredith Lyons, a uh, driving rehabilitation specialist since 2008 and the owner and chief operating officer of driving of Baker Driving Rehabilitation. Meredith was talking with us about how she assesses someone's suitability for driving and Meredith unfortunately I had to interrupt you to go to a break but you had talked about evaluating vision and hearing evaluating reaction time and going through an interview and uh, seeing what you can glean from the interview as well. Would you continue to to describe for us your driving evaluation? Sure. So uh, we do use standardized assessments 
um, that have the research backing to let us know um, kind of at what, you know, at what cutoff score. Um, but we don't go just on what happens in the office. So the clinical evaluation lasts about, well, an hour and a half. Um, sometimes for somebody with mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's or dementing disorder, um, it can last up to two hours because in the interviewing process, I might, you know, hear something that they say and go, okay, well, I want to see a clock drawing um, because that gives me information about um, organization and that tells me a little bit about what route planning may look like when, when we start driving. So in the office is really my time to get to know that client before we go on the road. So as one may expect, um, I want to be safe. When I have someone driving me, I do not want to get into an accident, um, and I don't want my clients to get into an accident, um, especially while I'm in the car. So That, that is very wise. Yes. So <laughs> I take a very long time, and so do the other um, driving rehab specialists that work with me. Um, you know, I've trained them. We've developed specific guidelines just for uh, Alzheimer's and mild cognitive impairment because those are tricky. Um, they're just, it's so difficult to tell day to day. It can be very different for those individuals. So the clinical evaluation in the office lasts about an hour and a half to two hours. And then we go out in the vehicle. And um, in the vehicle, what we look at, we start off by doing some very simple skills. So, um, reversing out of a parking space because I can then assess, you know, are they using their mirrors? Are they turning their head? What does their rotation of their body look like? If they do look over their shoulder, are they looking in multiple points of reference to make sure that when they're backing up, even if it, even if we're in a, um, a very low traffic parking lot, that's not typical for grocery stores or the mall where people typically right. drive. So I want to make sure that they're the safest. Um, even in an empty parking lot or low traffic parking lot. So we go from there. And um, once we start with those basic skills of reversing, I'll have someone park. I'll have someone do a quick stop on command. Um, what it does for me is it makes sure that they know I'm still in control, even though I'm not driving. So um, just as a 16-year-old with a driving instructor, the driving instructor has to have control over that car for their safety, for my safety. Um, so it, it kind of gives a little bit of that command presence in the vehicle. And then I have a conversation with them because that's typical driving. I mean, it's rare that somebody will drive by themselves. Um, and when they do, people often have thoughts going on in their head and they can distract themselves. So I want to see, can I distract them while they're driving? That tells me a lot about attention. But we'll, we'll have a, a, I have a typical driving course that we go out on the regular roads. I have a route. Um, it varies based on what I see. It varies based on what uh, occurred in the office. Uh, if I already know that this person has um, deficits in attention and memory and reaction time, then we may not do that entire route. We may stop the route. Um, I may add to the route. I may have them locate um, a McDonald's, a gas station, uh, just to see if they can find it. Um, and then and then once we're done with the standardized assessments in the office and the behind-the-wheel evaluation, 
then I have a very comprehensive look at what driving is, what their driving looks like. I'm not, you know, the adult child saying, well, they're not walking really well, so driving must be really bad. Or mom, you know, can't hear me very well, so driving must be really bad. Or, you know, even if she hasn't had an accident, I'm just really concerned because she's 80. So it gives me a very objective view of they could change lanes well, they observe traffic, they um, could make a left, um, an unprotected left turn at a traffic light, um, they could follow, you know, a route that they didn't know uh, with me telling them, you know, far in advance, I want you to make a left at the third light, I want you, you know, to then get in the right lane. So these kinds of things take all of those cognitive skills, and if they have those skills, then they can drive safely. Meredith, as you are doing this with one of your clients, do you have an objective scoring system that you use, or is it a fairly subjective scoring system? So there are therapists out there that have, um, that give points. Kind of like, I guess, the DMV may give points, you know, for making a right turn, um, safely or changing lanes safely, uh, we do not do that. In fact, I don't know of anybody in Maryland that does that, but I have heard of it before. Um, the reason I don't give points is that there are um, very clear indicators of unsafe behaviors in driving. So um, some, of the, um, some of the very unsafe behaviors are you just stop. I mean, there isn't, um, there isn't a go back, can I redo? So somebody who uh, can't stay in their lane or crosses a double yellow line, for instance, which has happened with me in the car, they cross the double yellow, I pull them back with the steering wheel, it's done. We find a nice safe place to pull over. Um, somebody who runs a stop sign, runs a traffic light, or, or almost does, I typically stop them. Um, and so those terminate are, the test then. Yeah, I mean, those are um, automatic fails, and they would be at the MVA. They definitely are with us. Um, it does get, there is a gray line, as you were saying earlier, or a gray area. There really is a gray area, and we frequently, and I mean we not just at Baker Driving, but the driving rehab specialists throughout Maryland, um, we have meetings with the MVA uh, Medical Advisory Board, and we we definitely all know of the clients that will get second and third and fourth opinions. Um, and and I, if I recommend retiring from driving for someone and they say I want to redo, I will let them know that I won't be redoing it, but they are welcome to, and I can give them a list of other driver rehab specialists in the area. And typically... It's the same outcome. I mean, I don't. I can't even think of um, an example of somebody that either I've gotten from someone else, um, where they had gone somewhere else first, or that I have um, been the first opinion and they got a second or third, and and they um, had a different opinion from it or a different recommendation. It's just and hopefully that will gradually then lead them to accept the validity of yeah. your conclusion. You would hope so, and especially because these services are not covered by insurance. These are cash-based um, programs. Are you know, their Medicare doesn't pay. Typically, there may be some states where the the um, 
where the Medicare guidelines, there's intermediaries that read the the law differently. Um, but typically across the board, it is not um, an insurance-based um, evaluation. The patients pay for it out of pocket. So it's expensive. Yes, and, and it, it is tying up a lot of your time, and you, <laughs> you are putting your life into their hands. Now, when you're driving right. with them, do you have a steering wheel and a brake pedal on your side also? We In Maryland, you cannot have a double steering wheel, um, so you can have a brake. Um, and going through, when you're going back to how, you know, how, did, um, how do you become a driving rehab specialist, the courses that you take, you learn how to take control of a vehicle. So you first learn how to take control of a vehicle using your words. And that's why I said initially, you know, we do that quick stop so that they can know that I'm in charge also, even though I'm on the passenger side of the vehicle. So you learn how to take control with your words. Um, you learn how to take control with your arms on the steering wheel. So how to pull them back. I've had to pull people um away from curbs and crossing, you know, double yellows and so forth. And then you learn um, how to take control with your foot. (laughs) So (laughs) I have only had one instance, um, and it was actually, excuse me, a vehicle malfunction, unfortunately, where our instructor vehicle, um, not the one that we have at this point, this was a few years ago, I don't know what was going on with the brake line, but the um, the gas pedal stuck, and um, luckily the gentleman that I was evaluating was coming to me because of a visual field issue, not a cognitive deficit, thank goodness. <laughs> that was good and fortune. <laughs> yes, we were driving down a very crowded, um, heavy traffic, three-lane um highway, not an interstate, um, and we were going probably 45 miles an hour, and he's like, the gas pedal stuck. I mean, very calm, thank goodness, very calm. Oh, my my goodness. I know, he hit it a couple times, and I said, okay, I'm going to put the car in neutral, and I'm going to slowly stop us. Because I didn't want to freak him out, really. Um, yes. So I put the car in neutral, and I'm looking around. We have um, extra mirrors for us, so we can see the client's eyes. I can see what's going on behind us. Um, so I'm looking around at traffic, and, you know, I'm slowing us down, and we stop at a, at a light. And then I said, okay, I'm going to put it back in drive, but be ready. Because I didn't know if it would stick, if it was still stuck. The engine was not revving at this point, but... We pulled over to a parking lot, and I turned, had him turn the car off, and I said, I just need one minute, and then we can go again. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and with, with that one minute, you took a deep breath, yes. and with that one minute, we are going to go to a break. And oh, when boy. we come back, I would, uh, I would like Meredith to get into the issue now of the older driver and unique considerations there. So stay with us. We will be back in just a couple of minutes. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. 
Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us. I'm Dr. Sam Brinkman, your host. And we are talking with Meredith Lyons, a driving rehabilitation specialist, and she has been talking about how we assess driving abilities, uh, how to maintain driver safety, and things like that. And I want to go now to the issue of the older driver. Statistics that I have read uh, indicate that if we use fatality rate, which is a, a horribly severe outcome measure, but fatality rates for drivers begins to climb very significantly as um, as a person ages beyond 65. In the 75 to 84-year-old range, it's approximately equal to that of teenage drivers. And uh, for those of you who have raised children through the age of 16 and beyond, you know what that means. For individuals 85 and older, the fatality rate skyrockets. So the question, Meredith, that I would like to present to you is this. What is it about becoming older in spite of a history of 40, 50, 60 years of driving? What is it about becoming older that makes driving safety a greater issue? Well, I think that's kind of a twofold question. Um, first, the the rates for older drivers and the fatality, you know, the, the fatal crash rate rise. But the um, the incidence of how many crashes they have or how many you know driving incidents they have is relatively low. The reason is that as you get older, you are um, more fragile. 
it's more of a risk of, you know, injuring bones and, um, you know, breaking bones and brain injury and so forth. Whereas younger, um, I mean, gosh, my son had a recent broken bone. He healed like that. It was nothing. <laughs> so, um, so unfortunately, after you get older, we become more fragile. Our skin is more fragile. Um, you know, typically we encounter um, osteoporosis and we have other medical conditions as we age, which then contribute to anything that may come from um, an accident, you know, car accident. So unfortunately, that that is the other part of that statistic. Whereas the teenage drivers, those fatal crashes are due to um, lack of experience in driving. Whereas the older adult, it's it's due to either, um, you know, age-related changes in vision and hearing and also all of those secondary, um, you know, diagnoses that we, that we encounter as we age. Um, the good news about the older driver is that they do have more experience and they, you know, um, they use their seatbelts and they, you know, typically drive when the conditions are safest. So they... Um, you know, generally, older drivers will not drive when it's snowing. They won't drive when it's heavy rain. They won't. They'll start, you know, reducing driving at night. Um, and so, and typically, those older drivers don't drive impaired from alcohol. So, I mean, there's definitely, um, you know, I don't want to sort of focus on the negative of the older driver. The positive is the things that we can really, um, I think, learn from the older adult is that they do have some of the safest driving. Um, the problem is when we get into the medical conditions, which can then start to impair the driving. Thank so, you for that I mean, explanation. I, that, that makes very good sense. So let me throw this issue out there then. As yeah. we think of, um, of visual changes with age, hearing changes with age, um, movement being a little bit slower, reaction time perhaps a little bit slower, uh, medications that they may be taking, um, cardiovascular things that may be relevant, not severely so, but having a mild impact. How, right. how does the public identify um, who is likely to become a uh, problem driver, if you'll forget that term. How does yeah. the public identify who should be considered for evaluation? Right. That is probably the million-dollar question. <laughs> yeah. I think that is probably one of the most challenging questions for doctors um, as well. Uh, Maryland, um, for instance, we have this medical advisory board. We have um, a self-reporting measure. So if you meet, um, if you have one of the diagnoses listed, which, co- you know, covers everything from um, PIA to, uh, you know, um, stroke, um, uh, dementia, limb loss, um, and then some of the other things that we may not think about that impair driving, like diabetes, seizures, and also um, the antidepressive disorder, um, schizophrenia, you know, some of those uh, mental health disorders that, you know, frequently aren't really discussed can actually, when people aren't really good at taking their meds um, and controlling those um, those diseases, they they can have impaired driving as well. 
So for Maryland, it's um, we ha- we are a self-reporting state, meaning if I were to have um, a stroke, I am supposed to report myself to the MDA. Um, the doctors can as well say my patient has had a stroke. I'm concerned about their driving. Each state uh, has some sort of system built in. I quickly looked up. I think you're in Texas. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay. I quickly looked up Texas, um, and it looked like um, any physician can um, inform, you guys have a Department of Public Safety, and um, even though you have that patient um, doctor confidentiality in the cases of driving, it can be waived for that instance. Um, okay. Not anonymous, which I think for some doctors would be a little scary because you don't want to lose your patient. You know, um, probably in most cases, no one sees the um, individual in question driving more than family members. And it becomes very difficult for family members to address these issues as well. And I have um, seen some guidelines. There's some information in the Alzheimer Association website and in other areas as well that really suggest that family members be talking with their older loved one about driving before the uh, ability to drive is gone. So, that becomes a part of the conversation and a part of uh, evaluative discussions and things like that. And uh, I certainly think that that's a good idea. Definitely. And I I wrote an article about who retires from driving, and it kind of covers some of those things, like when should somebody retire from driving and why do we even, we talk about retiring in general, but we never, ever, ever think about retiring from driving. I mean, most people are like, I'm driving until they, you know, until I'm no longer on this earth. Um, but, but really, you know, we've prepared for all these things and we never prepare for retiring or driving. And in that, very very good point, I talk about that family, you know, helps in that, in that planning, um, time where you would come to your loved one and say, I'm going to be there on Wednesdays and on Wednesdays. We can spend time together. If you want to run errands, I will be there. Versus saying, Dad, I'll take you whenever you want. That father is never going to ask their adult child to go run them to the local drugstore because they mm-hmm. don't want to bother that adult child who has children, who has a life, who you know is active and busy. And I've heard it a million times. Um, so even but, though family members are willing. Yeah. That's not older, necessarily an acceptable alternative. Well, I think it's more of like, I don't want to bother them. They're so busy. That's typically what I hear. They're so busy. They're, you know, my daughter, she has her kids and she works and, you know, she has to come home and cook and take them to soccer and baseball and everything else. And, um, and I, I've given advice to many family members and, I've, um, and what I've found that really works is that if you say, you know, mom, dad, I'm coming over on Wednesdays. I'm going to spend time with you. We'll have lunch together. I'll be there from, you know, noon to four, or maybe you come after work and I'm going to have dinner with you. And if you need anything, if you want to run to the store, let's go. If not, I'm just going to spend time with you anyway. That's a good idea. Just, you know, I'm there. So it's not a matter of taking up time. 
Yes, that's a very good recommendation to it. Let me shift our attention just for a second here. Uh, we have uh, just a couple of minutes till break. What can you say to older individuals about things they can do to maintain their driving skills? Yeah, so I wrote another article on that too because that's another passion of mine. And at some point in... Um, we just opened up Baker Driving about a year, but at some point, I would love to offer classes, just kind of like, um, you know, AARP offers classes and um, AAA offers classes for driver improvement. Um, I would love to offer cognitive classes to keep your brain sharp. So some of the things I wrote about um, in my article, which is how to sharpen your driving skills is um, really focus on that cognitive piece. We, we typically focus on, you know, exercise, and some people will even, as they retire, you know, go back to school, take some college classes, um, things that they love to do. You know, maybe take a, um, a photography class, things that you never did, and that challenges the brain, which is great. What it doesn't challenge, though, are those skills you need for driving, and those skills, after you retire, are very rarely used, unfortunately. <laughs> things like planning and organizing multiple things at a time, really that divided attention. As we get older, and especially as you retire, as I can see you know, with um, my parents, they have a lot more time. So you don't have to be efficient. You can just do them as you would like. But that doesn't challenge that multitasking kind of skill that you need for driving. So there are a couple of um, computer programs out there. Uh, Lumosity.com is one of them. There's a Cognifit.com. Uh, and there are brain games that specifically target those things like multitasking, like attention and memory, concentration, planning and organizing. Um, but there's other things. Um, I love things like playing slapjack with your grandkids where you actually have to do something fast. And typically, mm -hmm. your grandkids are chatting away while you're playing, so there's a little bit of divided attention. Um, you know, trying to, you know, maybe for someone who likes to cook, where you actually plan a three-course meal or, you know, you try to get it all done at one time. That takes planning and organization and time management and divided attention. There's so you really, you, really, uh, you really would focus people who want to maintain their skills on maintaining their cognitive, cognitive skills especially. Well, we are right. going to go to a break, and when we return, we will specifically address the issue of dementia. So stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. 
Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us as we go into our final segment with Meredith Lyons. We have been talking about driving, and um, in our last segment, we talked about driving with um, the changes that take place as drivers become a little bit older. And I am so grateful to Meredith for joining us, for giving her time, sharing her expertise. I want to now talk more specifically about driving and dementia or driving and cognitive impairment. It's said different ways. Keep in mind, as we've said in earlier programs, dementia simply means that there's some type of cognitive impairment. It doesn't mean it's severe. It can be very mild. Um, And uh, it also doesn't mean that um, it is necessarily memory, although usually that's the case. But there are other areas of impairment as well, relevant here, visual-spatial problems, for example. I looked at uh, what had traditionally been the guidelines that the American Academy of Neurology has used. And their old guidelines were specifically that if someone... Um, has mild dementia, they should give up driving. These were the old guidelines. They're not in place now. A couple of things have changed since then. One is the dementias are being diagnosed earlier and earlier, and so there are more mild and very mild individuals who have Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, or something similar. But the Academy of Neurology adopted guidelines that are very similar to what the Uh, family practice guidelines are, and these both involve getting some type of standardized assessment. Um, You know, the research really still is lacking even in the more detailed and very excellent assessment, Meredith, that you have described to us. You know, the research that has to do with predicting driving errors, accidents, you know, and things like that. There's some there, and certainly you had mentioned the the, uh, uh, useful field of vision measurement. There's probably more research 
with that than there is with many other things. But um, but the research continues to lack. So now when we come to the dementias and we consider that dementia may be very mild or it may be very severe, dementia may be progressive or it may be static. It may be an unchanging condition in which cognitive decline is in place and um, and does not get steadily worse from there. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, Meredith? When should someone with dementia undergo a standard evaluation? That's a hard question. Um, I, I think it's easy for me to say when they should definitely stop driving. I think um, what I have... When people call me, because oftentimes I'll get uh, family members calling asking questions about, you know, what's your program like and what's your evaluation like? And, you know, should should my mom have an evaluation, say she just got diagnosed with malcognitive impairment or she just got diagnosed with dementia? And I'll ask questions. Um, some of my questions revolve around how they're caring for themselves. So... I personally, and have read and research as well, that there is a big link between instrumental activities, activities of daily living, which are typically things like managing your medication, um, scheduling your appointments, your, managing your calendar, kind of managing your finances. Um, and I don't just mean, um, you know, a bill comes in, you write a check, it goes out. Actually managing the big picture of it, um, you know, not just writing a check. Um, so, so there's a link between those skills and driving skills. So you're looking at staying aware of the overall level of cognitive functioning of the individual, not just with respect to driving, but with life generally, instrumental uh, activities of daily living, for example. Yes. Um, in fact, I have a, a doctor's tip sheet that I have started giving doctors out because I feel like that's the number of questions like, well, when, when should I refer them? for a driving evaluation and what kinds of questions, you know, should I be asking? Because you guys have a very, you know, oftentimes a very limited amount of time to go over a lot of topics. That's um, right. And so, you know, you know, oftentimes the, the family member will come in and be like, I'm worried about, you know, my mom. Um, and, and sometimes the worry is unbounded. It's, they're walking with a walker. Um, but in the case of dementia, it's very founded worry and concern. So when are they when are they appropriate for an evaluation? When are they not appropriate for an evaluation? They're just ready to retire. Because I will tell you that I've had people come in my office that I wondered why they were coming in because they're thinking it's nineteen, you know, forty five and they they're so um far beyond, you know, what taking care of themselves. It's not even reasonable to think that they're driving, but yet they're But so often, you know, so often a primary care physician or a family member is just wanting that independent person to say it and to make the decision. I'd like to read to you, by the way, from an article, The Family Practice Indicators of Unsafe Driving. And these are, certainly would be clear indicators. Crashes. Yeah. Dents on the car. Difficulty understanding traffic signs driving too fast or too slow, failure to notice street signs, getting lost in familiar areas, this next one, indecent gestures or horn honking from other drivers. Oh <laughs> I'm my. not sure what what would those gestures be. Um, miscalc- <laughs> miscalculating speed and distance, near misses, yeah. poor judgment, tickets for traffic violations, and tunnel vision. Yeah. And so, you know, certainly those things would be very significant indicators 
But uh, the problem is that there probably should have been uh, uh, some observations that uh, would lead to a driving evaluation before then. Right. Well, and the other problem is that typically um, the driver doesn't recognize they're happening. So then you're relying on a friend or family member to report those. And typically the family member in question isn't the one driving. So the, the loved, you know, the, the older adult, the one with the dementia, isn't the one typically driving when their loved one's with them. At least that's well, what I find. Yes, you're exactly right there. Uh, but uh, again, we have emphasized so many times over monitoring cognitive functioning. Well, we are just about out of time here, Meredith, and I want to let you know how how strongly I appreciate what you have done uh, in terms of taking the time here and giving our listeners the opportunity to learn from you. Uh, we have a couple of programs coming up that I'd like to bring to your attention. One of these has to do with how a banking system and a police department join forces and put their heads together to increase protection of elderly from financial exploitation. Uh, another one will be a, um, uh, a discussion of drugs and aging, the full range of drugs, not just the drugs that are intended to alter mental functions, but the full range of drugs. So I think these are two programs coming up that will be interesting to you. And Meredith, again, I appreciate you. Um, we uh, have learned a whole lot from you, and I hope that you have a good evening there in uh, wonderful Maryland, and I look forward to talking with you in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.